You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. I haven't spoken to my next guest since around about early to mid-February, I think it was, and he's been very vocal on social media about the current situation when it comes to COVID-19, coronavirus, and the way that governments and people are treating this particular pandemic, as it's called. His name is Russell Lamberti. He's the founder of ATM Macro Advisors. Russell, yeah, you've been very, very, very vocal indeed about this. In fact, you've got a bit of a bee in your bonnet. I do, Lindsay. Hi, it's good to be with you again, mate. Thank you. I think that we've taken a very, very radical course of action. You know, global lockdowns, and particularly the kind that we're experiencing in South Africa, which is extremely draconian, I, I just think is is a radical treatment for a problem that's clearly clearly significant. I think I think the more data that comes out, we're we're getting a better handle on on the scope and the scale of of what COVID nineteen is. And I think the good news is that while it's clearly nasty, it's it's not as it's not as bad as as original fears you know led us to believe. And I think that that even if you might justify early lockdowns as as a precautionary approach. I think that we've got sufficient evidence now to to suggest that that they can and must start being lifted very very quickly because I think that we are starting to create unimaginable unintended consequences from uh, the, the macroeconomic sort of calamity that's that's now emerging and so that really is my is my position I think that mm. that we need to we need to continue with with sensible um, disease risk management um, we have a much better idea of who the high risk group is now given the data that we've seen we don't know everything about this virus I grant you that but we certainly have a much clearer picture that the picture that's that's far less clear is just how bad these lockdowns are going to get for for not just regular you know employment and income sort of statistics but for world poverty you know for for, for poor people particularly in South Africa, Yes. Who who are um, I think coming to a point of real desperation now, and and I would like to see much more proactive opening up again under sensible sort of risk management protocols. So so that's that's the bee that I've got in my bonnet. I, I think we're doing some real damage here. Yes, I think we are. I mean, what you're doing essentially is playing the macro environment, the macroeconomic environment, and our economic futures uh, versus human life. Now, how do you do that? Do you accept then that if we do completely abandon the lockdown scenario, then there is going to be some collateral damage and we just have to live with that or rather die with that? I think it's life versus life, Lindsay. I don't think it's economy versus life. I think that when you have dramatic lockdowns like we're seeing and you thrust people into joblessness, um, you thrust them into hunger, to, to in the worst cases, uh, severe malnutrition and poverty, you're talking real uh, mortality-based problems here. You're talking about increased risk of tuberculosis. You're talking about significantly increased risk of all the kinds of diseases that are associated with poverty, higher child mortality, higher uh, infant mortality. So I, I don't accept that it's it's a sort of taking collateral damage on the chin type situation. I think we're creating tremendous collateral damage. And I think that the evidence that we have up until now suggests that, that the trade-off is between very old, very sick people, by yes. and large, overwhelmingly, versus 
you know, I think many, many more, probably, uh, you know, two orders of magnitude more uh, very, very vulnerable young people now who have, who have their, their, their whole lives ahead of them. I think, I think we're making a very, very risky and ill-advised trade-off here. So I think it's lives, lives versus lives, as I say, and, and I think that policymakers probably haven't fully thought through what the risks that they're now creating through unintended consequences. And, and so now, now no one is omniscient and, and no one is, is perfectly prescient. And so I would say that the risk management principle here is not necessarily to make, you know, f- for a single policymaker to make the perfect choice and the perfect decision. I think that the, the principle here is allow for decentralized, as much decentralized risk management as possible. Allow people to work, allow them to work safely, allow them to manage their risk of catching the virus, to, to treating the virus and to, and to still earning a livelihood f- to put food on the table for their families. Everyone faces a different stack of risks um, in this equation. Everyone is extremely different or regions are different, different you know, income groups are different. So, so I think that the, the principle here is to devolve risk management back down to the local and, and business and family and individual level. It's difficult to do that, though, Russell. Let's say that uh, when I grew up in in England and I was educated at a state school, uh, there would be a class between 30 and 40 kids, and there'd be little Lindsay not particularly doing that well, and little Russell doing it extremely well. But unfortunately, they couldn't say, "Russell, you're such a you're such a bright chap. We're going to tailor our education system towards you." And Lindsay, you're a dunce. You're, we're going to tailor our, our system differently than we would with 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 Russell. If you see what I mean, it has, there has to be a sort of a, a blanket approach and just like there has to be i suppose a blanket approach when it comes to this this virus until we learn more about it no i disagree i mean i think that what we're actually learning is that is that complex risk management requires anything but a blanket approach and to the extent uh, that that your your analogy is at all applicable to this situation it shows the it shows the weaknesses of public schooling. You know, it doesn't show a strength of public schooling. It shows that public schools often get it wrong, that they apply, uh, you know, the same approach to the, to the wrong people. It's one of the reasons why private schooling and homeschooling is, is, is so much more popular. Well, this was, Lindsay, sorry, this was 45 years ago, and I do agree with you. What, what, I, I agree that the, the education system when I grew up was completely inadequate because people weren't guided towards the skills that they had. They weren't, they weren't tested. People didn't pull me aside and say, Lindsay, you're actually quite good at this, but you're absolutely crap at this. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah. I'm, I'm going, I was just using the the analogy, and I don't see how no, that the I, I government get, I, I, can. I get your point, and, yeah. I, and, I, and I get where you're coming from. I, 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 as I say, I've stated my position. I think, I think what we're seeing is that you know a farmer in the Karoo, and a street trader in uh, Soweto, and uh, you know a rural Eastern Cape dweller and a Cape Town uh, Seapoint middle class person. The, these people all face very, very different realities, very, very different risks. Some of them are at risk of dying from this virus because they're perhaps very old with with uh, significant other illnesses. Some of them are young and healthy uh, but poor, and they need to get to work and they need to to be able to earn income for their families. Everyone faces radically different choice sets here, and I and I just think that blanket policy for sixty million people, or for three hundred million people, or for one point three billion people. 
I mean, I mean, it just doesn't fly as a real-world risk management strategy. And and I just hope. I mean, I'm 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 pessimistic about this, but I hope that one of the lessons we learn from all this is that we can't just a react with sheer panic at the sight at the first sight of any any enemy, and b that we that that for that for complex things. We have to just accept that we don't have all the answers and we certainly don't have all the answers at a centralized level. We can't keep relying on one or two men who we may or may not like who lead countries to get us out of these complex problems. Society is far, far more textured and nuanced than that. And I'm concerned that people are running to central government once again and haven't learned the lessons of the past and, and, are, and are potentially making a very big mistake again now and now in the present. Undoubtedly, it's an imperfect situation that we have. But do you agree that South Africa, for example, because that's what you're focusing on at the moment as a proud South African, is, uh, well, a South African, let's put it that way, is that we need a bespoke, a tailor-made approach. So, for example, you open a bar and you've, uh, someone's got a badge and says, well, I'm healthy and I've been tested so I can come in and have a drink. And there's some old sick person who has got a different sort of badge and is maybe vulnerable. That person can't come in. I don't think we have the resources to apply the bespoke approach, Russell. Well, no, I think what we don't have the resources to apply is what we're doing right now, Lindsay. We don't have the resources to police 60 million people um, in a draconian fashion. Mm. Uh, South Africa has called up the entire military at at a cost um, of 5 billion rand, and I expect that that will probably grow um, as these things are very sticky and won't unwind very easily. Um, If we'd spent 5 billion rand on um, immediately upscaling our hospital infrastructure, building temporary facilities and so on, and we wouldn't need a military to to enforce a draconian lockdown. I don't think we have the resources at all, at all, for what for what we're trying to achieve here. We're shutting down the economy. Um, we're diminishing uh, supply. We're diminishing the pool of wealth uh, that the government can therefore draw on to 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 manage this process. We now have to feed uh, the government now has to feed hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people. Um, if you're talking resource constraints, that's where your resource constraints are. The other side of the equation is is creating very simple, tolerable, sensible risk protocols and allowing businesses to open up and on and operate and innovate around those. And and the question is, how do you uh, police that? How do you administer that? You administer that like you administer every other every other rule in the country, uh, imperfectly, yes. Um, but remember that most law enforcement happens by citizens themselves, people. Um, observe what businesses are doing. They whistleblow on businesses that are, are breaking the rules egregiously. Um, and you, you could have age restrictions um, on, on most uh, activities that involve public gatherings. You know, people above a certain age for a certain length of time, unfortunately, can't participate in those activities. There are many ways to, to kind of skin this cat. Uh, I, I just think that the approach that we've taken is, is the real resource um crunch uh, approach. We, we don't have the resources to do what we're doing in South Africa. Right? No, we don't. You're absolutely right. And uh, that is very draconian. I mean, it's, I, I was astonished when uh, I think it was something like 73,000 troops were called up. I don't know how many have, have managed to get onto the streets, but I don't quite understand uh, that one. Do you think then, from what you've just said, that, that you would assign the responsibility to the individual? In other words, we become good at self-regulation? I think there's many layers to this, Lindsay. I don't think it's about individual versus state. I think it's, it's yes, and sure, ind- individual, but it's also um, family. It's also 
um, your your suburb and your community. It's it's your it's the institutions of life um, that exist outside of the purview of the state. You know, it's 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 educational institutions. It's it's all of it's it's all of life. Uh, it's businesses. You know, um, we 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 I think have this assumption that only the state can a see the risks, b quantify them and and sort of identify how bad they are and then and then see kind of implement you know a strategy that, that everyone has to follow um the, the truth is that that um all, all these other institutions can manage risk extremely effectively in fact the private sector in many respects shows how how well it can manage risks we, we have specialized risk management industries you know around insurance and, and, and the actuarial industry there are many, many solutions and many, many different ways of approaching this problem. And that's precisely how complex problems should be approached from different angles by many different smart people. What we have done instead is we've centralized a few people around the presidency who are making very, very opaque decisions. And if they get one decision wrong, it's, it's kind of ruinous for everyone. That's a huge gamble. This is, this is radical stuff. What I'm Proposing Lindsay is is far more moderate and essentially decentralizes the risk and and it and it makes us far less prone and far less likely to to have a calamitous outcome in my view. Okay, so you they suddenly create a ministerial position and you are at the forefront of uh, the candidacy and you are going to be the COVID nineteen uh, minister or potentially. What would be your portfolio? What would you say to yeah. President Cyril Ramaphosa? How would you go about it compared to what yeah. he and his team have done? I think the first thing you, you've got to do is admit what you don't know. Um, and you, you, you seldom hear that coming out of government. Um, the government tries to project, I suppose, an, an aura of omniscience. You need, to, you need to talk about what you don't know and what you cannot achieve and therefore um, what is best achieved outside of the purview of government. Um, and I think what the government can do as, as an administrative function, as a, as a, as a function that administers uh, rules and law and justice and all these things, is I think in, a, in, a, in an efficient consultative way that's, that's fed by the best data that, that's coming out of, of, of this global situation, is to come up with tolerable uh, parameters around which people can then innovate themselves and manage their own risks. So, um, it, you know, it might be, for example, that, that, that there's a very few sets of very simple rules like, uh, like age restrictions, uh, as in age, age caps on, on who can participate in, in certain events, yes. density caps on, on factories or on certain kinds of economic activity or on travel, for example. But even even under these sorts of rules, I believe that the airlines could open up again, the airlines could operate. It may be that if you're over a certain age, you don't get to fly. It may be that the, that the airplanes are less filled with, with, with people. But I, I think that, that ultimately you can make some very simple parameters and then you allow um, you allow the private sector, you allow free society to, to, to then manage their risk from there and then you administer that and a due process uh, without making all these new sort of ham-fisted rules and regulations. Um, I think since the start of uh, the, this, this lockdown uh, situation, Lindsay, we've gotten about 500 new pages of uh, rules and regulations. And I can pr- promise you now that 
not all of those 500 pages will disappear when this is all done. Yes, I do think that the governments of, around the world are not using it, but certainly are going to take advantage of this current situation. I mean, for example, in Russia, the, the, the amount of scrutiny that uh, Russian citizens are under at the moment won't disappear yeah. once COVID-19 is over. That's an extreme event. Just in case you mm. do become the minister of the coronavirus, could you please, <laughs> could you please make, make the travel restrictions for people over 60? Thank you. <laughs> I want to have a holiday at some stage in my life. I don't want to trivialize or be trite or. Yeah dismissive of, of what's what's happening at the moment but i do yeah. find it fascinating when it comes to the potential investment trends when it comes to social behavior when mm. it comes to stupid things like for example you haven't had your haircut for uh, five weeks or so do you go back mm. to your old haircut or do you grow your hair long do, do fashion trends change <laughs> do social trends change more importantly does human behavior change so that you don't yeah. go to work five days a week or four days mm. a week you only go to work one day a week to say hello to a couple of people and then go back don't you find this prospect absolutely yeah. enthralling? Yeah, look, these are literally, you know, million dollar, maybe billion dollar questions that you're asking. Um, I think I think that they're, you know, depending on how long this lasts and depending on how long we are, I guess, in this posture of fear or perhaps posture of, of, of defensiveness around around health risks. Yeah, there's, there's I think, going to be some fascinating little micro trends that are going to emerge. Um and it's it's really hard to pin down exactly where these are. And I, I know there's you know people a lot smarter than me who are probably thinking very hard about some of this stuff and jumping into some of these trends um, early. But um, I do I do think about all this. I think at a bigger picture, for me, I'm not I'm not sure that coronavirus is a is itself a a very significant trend changer mm-hmm. as much as much as I think it's it's it's, it's a trend accelerator so i have a feeling that that the trends that were in place and some of the big things that were were in place or or that were trending in place prior to coronavirus um might have been accelerated by it i just think of one example Lindsay, being being that we we know we were in a world that was trending more towards nationalism and you know more uh, restrictive uh, travel uh, and border crossings all these things were in play, not only in the US and the UK, but it's it's rearing its head throughout Europe as well. Um, and I think what's really interesting about this is, if anything, this is going to accelerate a trend like that. It's going to make people a little more wary of just letting uh, you know anyone into their country. It's going to probably be a, an accelerant to the barriers, if you like, going up um, around the world. Uh, certainly, there's, there's there's been no love lost between the US and China over this coronavirus. But again, that's an accelerant of a trend. That was already in play. So one more example, uh, we had central banks looking to uh, drop interest rates, print money. Coronavirus has accelerated that trend, uh, you know, incredibly. And there's many, you know, there's many other examples I could give, and, and I'm sure someone really smart could, could give an example of where a trend may be changing and may be turning around. I'm sure that's you know probably also there lurking somewhere, but I think trend accelerant is a good way to think about this for now. Yes, I mean, the obvious one is home deliveries. I mean, it's it's so simple and it's so obvious. And you see the Amazon share price going to all-time record highs despite the rest of the market being under a little bit of pressure. But, I mean, it's almost too obvious for that to be a trend accelerant, although a trend that was in place has been accelerated, of course. Well, it's certainly not obvious in uh, in South Africa, Lindsay, because uh, I think we're the only country in the world where e-commerce remains banned. So, uh, spare of thought. 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand that one. And I don't understand. Can you oh, tell me something as well? I don't want to get no, too colloquial bitty, here, but what, 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 why, is alcohol and cig- why are alcohol and cigarettes banned in South Africa? I don't quite understand that. Is that because of social, well, it's, it's, social unrest or something? I think it's, I think it's good old South African, you know, paternalism that, uh, you know, the masses can't be trusted with booze and fags, you know, <laughs> and, uh, I, I think it's more of this sort of petty, petty bureaucracy that the ANC are lapping up, and in many ways, you know, uh, replicating from the from the bad old days. So, so I just think I think it's we're getting more of the same. I mean, I mean the the ban on e-commerce is, to my mind, uh, you know, like I can get my head around the the arguments for banning alcohol. I disagree with it, but I can sort of hear hear the arguments. Yes, um, I, I don't. I don't hear the argument on e-commerce. Uh, if you, if you disallow people from going and buying clothes for the looming winter in South Africa, but you then also disallow them from getting them delivered to their house, um, which is about the safest way I can think from a virus perspective of buying something. Well put. Um, I, I just it just beggars belief. I, I you know and, and and so therefore the only explanation is sheer pettiness and, and the power trip that these bureaucrats are on. And I, and, I, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think we're seeing a real ominous power trip here in South Africa. Okay, I'm having too much fun to curtail this chat, Russell. So indulge <laughs> me for the next few minutes and give me some wisdom Absolutely, of yours from outside of the borders of the Republic of South Africa. And let's look at a couple of other countries, for example, uh, the United States of America or the United Kingdom or even Italy. How do you think they've handled it, given the demographics and the difference in uh, our economic and socioeconomic profiles? Yeah, great question. Um, I, I think that. What I am happy about is that countries have taken different paths in, in dealing with this. Uh, we've got the Sweden approach. Uh, perhaps the Taiwan approach is similar. We've got the the you know Italian and Spanish approaches. Um, Germany's a little bit different. Uh, the UK was sort of uh, you know slow then 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 fast. Um, and America is is kind of quite unique as well in, in that it has this very federalized um, system, this very federalized response. So you've actually got the different states within the United States um, taking very different decisions around the, you know, the lockdown response. And so um, as a general comment, I think it's really good that we've, we've got these different, these different approaches because, because we're going to get some good data from it. That sounds very cold and clinical but I think it's going to help us learn some some important lessons as we go beyond this. What we're seeing, I think, in the data up until now, um, and of course, you know, it's it's a it's a minefield out there. This data, but but I would say that if if you had to pull back the lens, what you're seeing across all these countries is that the approach that everyone has taken, whether it's it's hard lockdown, immediate lockdown, uh, delayed. Uh, the Sweden approach, which is very, very little of any kind of lockdown, but more social distancing, it seems to be that the that the outcome for the spread of the disease and for death is by and large quite similar. It, it doesn't seem to have a huge impact. Um, now that's you know that may change. We may get more clarity on that on that data as we go through time. But I think that's an interesting sort of first conclusion that we're starting to see from the from the data is that it doesn't really matter that much um, and and i think so now the question is i suppose what does matter because we are seeing 
we are seeing some countries experiencing very high death rates, uh, like Italy, like Spain, uh, portions of the United States, like New York. So, and even within Italy, it's mostly up in the north, you know, in Lombardy. So it's yeah. very, 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 very regional specific, which is which is kind of a bit of a head scratcher as well. Um, I, I guess I guess the, the one thing we do know is that is that age is a huge factor. And 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 underlying illnesses and comorbidities is, is, is a huge factor. So so um, but what I will say is this, Lindsay, as a final comment on this, is that mm-hmm. these different approaches. Therefore, my conclusion at this stage is that these different approaches um, aren't really making that much of a difference from a from a virus uh, sort of epidemiological perspective, but they certainly are making a difference from an economic perspective. And what was interesting to see was in the month of March. We saw vehicle sales collapse across the whole of Europe, whether you were talking Spain or Italy, which were obvious ones, but even a place like Austria, France, um, Germany, a country that that saw its vehicle sales numbers and therefore as a, as a proxy for, for economic activity hold up, still fall, but hold up far, far better than everyone else was in fact Sweden. And what that you know that's not surprising we they haven't shut down so 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 what uh, what's going on here is that sweden may may be moving into a situation where their virus outcomes are no worse than their than their peer group yeah but that their economic outcomes are are certainly better um and i think that could be a very very telling uh sort of data point when this is all said and done it's interesting actually because austria has lifted its restrictions probably more than most. I think business has gone back to 40% of what it was before, which goes back to your point about uh, individuals uh, self-regulating. So people can go and do what they used to do, but they're choosing not to at the moment. And I live in the Netherlands right now, and um, I phoned a hotel the other day, and I I just wanted to get some anecdotal evidence of what's going on. I thought maybe Mm. their rates had gone down from 150 euros a night to maybe 30, 40 euros a night just to get people through the door, but not a bit of it. In fact, they've gone up a little bit and um, four or five weeks ago uh, I phoned this particular hotel and the manager said we've got one room occupied at the moment now I spoke to them three days ago and I said what's the update he said we've now got 50 rooms because the Dutch people are so fed up with not being able to go out to uh, a restaurant that they're, they're booking a room at our hotel just for a night in order to get a meal delivered to their room from our kitchen because they're so fed up with cooking at home. And these are the sort of little micro trends that tell me that maybe yeah. something is going to happen. Just very final question. I promise it is the last one. I spoke no, to, no, I, I speak to somebody who says we're going to go back to uh, normal life as soon as the restrictions are lifted. Other people are saying no. This has changed everything. Where do you stand? Uh, left, right, or somewhere in the middle? <laughs> yeah, at, at, at risk of uh, at risk of being the fence sitter, um, I, I do kind of feel it initially will look look like something in the middle there. I think that there's no doubt, there's no chance, should I say, that that everything gets uh, lifted and we go, we click our fingers and we go immediately back to where we were. I agree with you on that. That's very, very improbable. And we're, and as you say, we're seeing you're seeing signs of that in Austria and, and uh, in, in you know practically in the Netherlands. Very, very strange kind of things going on. So I don't think we go back to normal immediately. But equally, I think that the people who say this changes everything, you know, the the this changes everything crowd, I think are overstating it. I think they're overstating the case. 
I think it potentially changes everything to the extent that we perpetuate government's right and government's ability to to severely and significantly control how society behaves and the kinds of things we can do. One of the things I'm worried about, for example, we, you know, we saw post 9-11, the ramping up of airport security. Yes. Um, post COVID, I can only imagine what a nightmare airports are going to become in terms of not only, you know, security screenings, but but then health screenings. And so travel, I think, is, is one of the areas where we're going to see this change, you know, most lasting and most frustrating, probably. I think it's going to be very, very onerous and and you know unenviable to to travel now and to move through these busy airports i think it's going to be a bit of a nightmare so so that's you know that those sorts of areas concern me and i suppose there's a, there's a few more that i do worry about i think this will take us a few months to get over but um normal life can resume you know i think the big the big issue for me is that people have to demand and and fight for their their civil liberties again <clears throat> when all this blows over the last thing we want is to be left with very, very overbearing sort of soft tyrannies, if you like. And I think that's a that's a real concern I have. And I hope that people can spot that risk and, and try to resist that. Yes, indeed. In the words of the poet Robert Frost, very, very simple statement he made, life goes on. Russell, thank you so much for yeah, your indeed. wisdom. That's uh, Russell Lamberti, the founder of ETM Macro Advisors in the Western Cape. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organization, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.